Hey, good morning, everybody. Sounds a lot different without the mask on. That's nice. So uh, it's good to be back. I wasn't here last week uh, and um, had a little getaway uh, since my extended family with my kids weren't able to get together over the holidays. We rented a house where we kind of, you know, kept our distance for a little while, got tested, and then we all went down and, and rented a house together. So for like five days, I had all six of my grandkids together in one spot, which is sort of like Papa Heaven uh, in my dictionary. But really appreciate you filling in, Blake. And he gave a great teaching last week. And honestly, I appreciate everybody who puts so much into every week here, uh, between the sound people and the media people and the Kids Gate volunteers and everybody, the coffee, everything that goes into us having a meeting like this. I'm so appreciative of everything that everybody does here. So thank you for that. Uh, I know that, you know, it always doesn't go perfectly. I know sometimes even with the media, things don't uh, go perfectly. Uh, but, you know, that's church for you. So that's the way that goes. We're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke today. And if you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along, you'll want to go to Luke chapter 4, please. Um, last week, we read more about John the Baptist um, I'm afraid to try to flip the slide or start the slideshow, but I'll let you guys... There we go. Okay. Uh, so last week, as we were finishing up chapter 3, we read about John the Baptist, a little bit more of his message. We read about the baptism of Jesus and the events that took place there. And, and again, Blake drew some really compelling... And Blake left off last week. Um, Luke finishes, actually, the account of Jesus' baptism in verse 23, saying Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Jesus was known as the son of Joseph. Joseph was the son of Heli. Heli was the son of Matat. Matat, the son of Levi. And it goes on like that for another 15 verses. Um, yeah, it's exciting stuff. Uh, now listen, in the ancient world, genealogies were really important to people. That was a big deal. Like, they would hang on that stuff, you know, like we uh, hang on Saturday morning cartoons. That even dates me. There's no such thing as Saturday morning cartoons anymore, which is kind of sad. Either way... Something for another teaching, I suppose. But uh, especially what was really important for people with genealogies was the establishment of a royal line. That really was what would draw everybody's attention when it came to all of these various names that were in there. The Gospels contain two genealogies for Jesus. There's one in Matthew, and then there's one in uh, Luke's Gospel here. Now, there are differences uh, where they appear in the gospel is different from Matthew to Luke. Uh, Matthew begins his genealogy from Abraham and works, his all the, works himself up to Jesus. Luke does the opposite. He works from Jesus backwards. Um, Matthew takes his genealogy to Abraham, but Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam, which, again, because he's writing to a Gentile audience, he may be wanting to make sure that we understand that Jesus is, is identified with humanity, not just Israel, but with, with all of us. Uh, the big issue that scholars have to wrestle with uh, a lot is the fact that uh, these two genealogies don't match up. Uh, there's completely different names uh, associated with a lot of parts of it. And there are a lot of proposals as to how we can... Uh, reconcile these. Some have suggested that one genealogy follows the line of Joseph while the other genealogy follows the line of Mary. Um, the arguments on this are so complex and involved to, you know, to really dive into it. Honestly, I'm somebody 
who just feels like a Sunday morning is not the place to do a deep dive into a genealogy. And I see people nodding in agreement with me, so I think I'm in the right place. Uh, the main point of both of these genealogies is to identify Jesus as an heir of David, as part of that royal line of David. That was important for the authentication of him as Messiah. And both of these genealogies do that. They come from different places and take different routes to get there, but they land at the same place. So we're going to skip the uh, genealogy and go on over to chapter 4, which actually begins the account of Jesus' ministry. And it begins out in the wilderness with his temptation. By being baptized and also in his genealogy, Luke has already told us that Jesus is identified with Adam. And here in this temptation, we're going to see that that identification goes all the way to the very depths of who we are as human beings. Jesus is going to face what Adam faced, but with a decidedly different outcome in this. Because as we stated, well, as was stated actually by the Father directly in the last chapter when Jesus was baptized, The father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So he's not just identified with Adam, but he's also God's son, which makes him Adam 2.0. And so what's it going to mean that Jesus is the son of God? What does it mean that this is who he is? That's at the heart of the temptations that Jesus is going to face in this uh, section of our text. We learn about what kind of a Messiah Jesus is going to be through these temptations, and we learn some things about how we will follow Jesus in our times of struggle because we are part of God's family as well. How will we follow his example and overcome these temptations? We learn about what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be and what kind of followers of this Messiah we are. So if you're there in Luke chapter 4, we're going to begin starting with verse 1. It says, Then Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. In other words, went back north probably to Galilee. He was led by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now, it's important to note that it clearly states, both in the original language and in the English, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is leading Jesus here. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who led Jesus to the place of testing uh, where he's going to be. This is one of the most important things that we need to establish when it comes to understanding testing and temptation in the life of a believer. And that is that tests and temptations are an integral part of this life of faith that we follow. This is not some sort of odd or unusual thing to happen. This is something to be expected in, in this. It's not that God is trying to tempt or test. James 1.13 emphatically states that God cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt anyone. But we, when drawn by our own desires, get led in this direction. But right before John makes that statement, James makes that statement, he also says that testings and trials are a part of this experience of following Jesus. It's the means by which we grow. It's how we find our, our place of maturity and our stable life of following after God. So temptations and tests are part of this ongoing pattern. We could even say part of this ongoing pattern of biblical thought. Because do you remember when we, when we began this teaching, when we, when we started this study in Luke, we talked about the importance of knowing the story that precedes the gospel, right? 
We don't ever want to just look at the gospel in isolation, but we want to understand it in light of the larger story that led us to that. And, and we, we stated then that the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, basically tell one story, but they tell it over and over and over again. It's the story of the establishment of God's order through a people who are meant to bear his image into the world. And the, those people end up forsaking God's order in order to, to, to order things around human wisdom, forsaking God's purpose and plan to, to orient life around human understanding, human wisdom of right and wrong. It starts in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The first picture that we get of humanity uh, the, the, and, and the test is placed right in front of them there. There's a tree here. Don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they get tempted. We know the story. They get tempted. They fail and they eat the fruit. They, they, they seek to be their own God. They determine to establish the order of the world around their own wisdom of right and wrong. And then they have to leave. They, they leave the place that had been, that had emerged out of the void, out of, you know, the, without form and void. And so then they have to leave and go back into that kind of a state. And so then we have this pattern repeated again and again. So God comes to Abraham and gives the same invitation. Come out, represent me into the world. And then Abraham, again, follows suit and begins to order the world around his own understanding. Moses uh, does it. The people of Israel do it. The, David, the king, does it over and over this pattern. And all the time, ending back up into a place where in the chaos, God tries to bring order. And so it all culminates, this story, this repeated pattern, culminates with Israel going into exile. Remember, they, they wanted to, to, to worship the gods of the nations. They wanted to be like the nations so much that God allowed the nation, the, the foreign nations to come and swallow them up. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're back into the chaos, back into a place without form and void as a nation. And so the good news begins at that point. Jesus leaves the scene of his baptism and he's prompted by the Holy Spirit to go out into the wilderness. And again, the wilderness is taking us back to that, that pre-Adamic state without form, without void, or taking us into the wilderness when the, the people of Israel had to travel in the wilderness before they got to that promised land of people without form and void. Forty days in the desert echoes back to 40 years in the desert spent by Israel. So, this pattern, this pattern is circling, uh, circulating again, and it comes to this where Jesus now is also going to go out and face the same kind of tests uh, that the people that went before him did. He's tested by the Satan, or uh, it says in the NLT, the devil. It's from the Greek diabolos, uh, the Satan in Hebrew. It simply means the accuser. It means the slanderer, the one who is at odds with God's purposes. It's a very mysterious character in the Bible, really. I mean, I know that we've got a lot of uh, traditional thought developed around that, but if you stick purely with what the scriptures reveal, it's, it's elusive. Sometimes this term is applied to a human adversary, sometimes more cryptically to an unseen enemy that is intent on thwarting God's purposes. But Jesus is out in the wilderness, and that wilderness also then represents a place of new beginnings because it was from the wilderness that Israel emerged into the nation of Israel. And, and so he's out there in this place of new beginnings. He's tempted by the Satan. But here is where we suddenly encounter a sudden break in the pattern. 
Here, something changes. And through that change, we're going to see that all that follow after Jesus in his footsteps can also overcome and break from the fallen patterns that led up to this point. Tests and temptations in life, they are not bad. This is not something that has gone wrong in our life when we're facing this. I've had people come to me before saying, you know, will you please pray with me? I'm a Christian and yet I'm tempted, you know, with this or that thing. And I feel like I'm as a Christian, I shouldn't be tempted with that. Uh, And, you know, my answer is always no, that's absolutely incorrect thinking on your part as far as that goes. I mean, the reason that it's a temptation is because you're a Christian. If you weren't a follower of Christ, none of these things would matter that much. You know, you don't want to hurt yourself or hurt somebody close to you. But in terms of there being any real moral issue on this, it's the fact that we're following after Jesus that even makes it something that's a struggle. Temptation is not a sign that something's wrong in your life. It could actually be the opposite. Uh, the main issue in this is how do I respond? to this test. Testing is going to be there. How do I respond to it? How can I respond in a way that looks to God to get me through this? And that's the idea that unfolds then as we continue on unpacking this. Let's uh, pick up again with verse 2. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Okay, so there's nothing in this account, despite all of the movies and the paintings and everything else that we've seen about it all through our lives. There's nothing in this account that would indicate that Jesus is actually engaged in a debate with a physical being that he's uh, seeing there. Some, you know, somebody just have a, a conversation with more than likely Uh, This is just a string that would appear to be natural thoughts in his own mind. Plausible, attractive ideas that just pop into the head. And we think, well, that that sounds good. I've been there. Have you been there? I mean, that's most of the time. That's what I deal with. If the devil is going to do any whispering to me, it always sounds like me when when I'm hearing. If if it sounded, you know, really diabolical and a lot of hissing, I think I would be able to pick up on that. Uh, You know, I think that's a bad idea. No, but so it says, it it says, this is awesome. It says that Jesus ate nothing for 40 days. And in a colossal example of understatement, it says he was very hungry. Really? (laughs) After only 40 days. I'm surprised. (laughs) During this pandemic, I would be happy if I could go 40 minutes without eating (laughs) something. But now, Jesus wasn't acting like a superhero. And again, those are one of those things that we kind of get in our mind that somehow Jesus was out there and he's impervious to all of the the temptations. He's impervious to all of the things that, that hurt us or provide pain to mortals. But that's not the truth. He was fully man as well as being fully divine. So he was depleted. And of course, that is when humanity is most vulnerable to temptation. And so the Satan suggests a thought. If you're really the son of God, And by that phrase, he's not necessarily questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. What he's saying in there is that since you are the Son of God, like, well, you know, you've got this thing going on for you. Why don't you act like it? And the question, the questioning tone of it actually becomes a hyperlink back to the Garden of Eden. The question posed by the snake that was there, has God really said you can't 
eat anything? Once again, the temptation begins with the issue of food. But, uh, you know, that's just how it seems to work. Our enemy is offering things, oftentimes offering things that are actually good things. There's nothing wrong with these things, but they're coming for the wrong reasons or at the wrong time. There's nothing wrong with Jesus eating when he's hungry. There's nothing wrong with anybody eating when they're hungry. But the enemy chimes in. If you're really the Messiah, you should do something for yourself. You need to keep your strength up, man. Being a Messiah, that burns a lot of calories. Nobody wants a malnourished Messiah running around. Use what God's given you to get what you want. Use what God's given you to get what you need here. It was a temptation for Jesus to alter his agency as Messiah just enough that his purposes were no longer going to be God's purposes, but they were going to be his own, for his own purposes. The idea doesn't sound evil. He was hungry. He just wanted to eat. So the thought pops into his head, I could use the power that I was at my disposal to fabricate my own bread and feed myself. But I think we learn here that we're going to overcome temptation by refusing to use by refusing to use what God has provided for selfish gains. Now, when I talk about selfish gains, we're talking beyond mere toilet paper hoarding or something like that. We're actually talking about self-will as opposed to God's will. And that includes things like hoarding and, and all of that. But, you know, in this case, the enemy was tempting Jesus to fulfill a legitimate desire in an unauthorized way, in a way that asserted his own will regardless of God's intent. And that is the core definition of sin. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. There's nothing wrong with eating bread when you're hungry. But grasping for those things as an expression of self-will distorts those innocent things and perpetuates the problem that started in the Garden of Eden when they reached for something that they weren't supposed to reach for. Ordering things around human wisdom instead of God's purposes and God's will, God's plan. You know, we talk about sin and temptation to sin, and oftentimes we relegate sin to a series of actions or activities that we can easily list off. And Usually we like to list it off concerning other people because that's way easier. It's their sins. My sins, you know, they actually don't even smell that bad. But their sins are awful. <laughs> but, but almost all of the things that we talk about, when we talk about these lists that we curate, we're listing off legitimate desires or needs. Like hunger. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with our sexuality, our desire for security or, or temporal comfort. Or you could even, you know, make it more culturally current, a hope for a government that upholds godly values. There's nothing wrong with any of those things except when we grasp for them in ways that are outside of God's purposes and plans for how it is his kingdom operates in ways that assert our own will instead of God's will and God's purposes. Yeah, but Rob, I mean, how are we going to know? How how am I going to know if whatever it is, is, you know, God's will or not. I mean, it's not like there was a line in Leviticus that said, you shall not even consider turning rocks into bread. It's right out. It's not covered in the scriptures. How are we supposed to know? I would say 
The same way Jesus was able then to know that turning stones to bread was out of God's will. Jesus responds with God's word. And notice it's not a proof text that that definitively forbids some activity, but it's a, a scripture that reveals God's values and his purposes for our lives. It's not just about quoting scripture at some temptation along the way. Jesus, by speaking God's word, is submitting to God's values. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, humanity doesn't live by bread alone. In other words, Jesus was keeping his priorities in place. Life is run on more than food. In fact, in terms of priorities, life is not defined by bread at all. At all. Instead, life is defined by bearing God's image into the world, of doing God's will and depending on God's leading for our lives and the decisions that we make. For Jesus to use his miraculous power here would be an assertion of independence from God, from the Father. And that is the heart of this temptation. Do this for yourself. Don't worry about all these other factors. Do what you know you want to be done. You know, you think about it. And this is what's fun about these temptations. I mean, you know, as we're reading about them in Jesus' experience. But he's going to do this miracle. He actually does this exact thing that he's tempted to do later on in the gospel story. He's going to be out in the desert. He is going to create all kinds of bread for a lot of hungry people. God's not against miraculous bread somehow. He wouldn't worry there's too much gluten in the world. Jesus clearly had the power to do this. But when he does it, it's to feed a lot of people. It's to feed others and not just himself. And this is the issue. The enemy specifically tempts Jesus to do these things without God and simply for himself. So our first step in overcoming temptation is to check our motives and what it is that we're doing, what choice it is that we're making, the things that it is that we say, either in person or online. Are our motives in sync with God's word, with his values revealed in his word? Are our motives in sync with the values of God's kingdom as it's revealed through Jesus? Are our Motives submitted to God or are they self-will expressed through our lives, our choices, our actions? The issue for Jesus in this temptation was what kind of a Messiah is he going to be? And the issue for us is what kind of a human am I going to be in this world? What kind of citizen will I be of God's inbreaking kingdom? And what is it people understand or, or see about God's kingdom when they look at my life or hear the things that I say or read the things that I write? How will God's kingdom be viewed through the choices that I make? So that means the things I say and the things that I do, like Jesus out in the wilderness, they matter. Because it's more than just Jesus in his own head. It matters how we live how we carry ourselves. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 5. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him... Sorry, I want to make sure that was right. Revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I'll give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said. 
because they're mine to give to anyone I please. I'll give it all to you if you'll worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So again, more than likely, this is describing the Satan putting an image in Jesus's head, uh, you know, a quick flash, a vision of something, of the kingdoms and governmental structures of this world. And he makes a suggestion that Jesus could have all of that, that the Satan would give it to him if he just, on the condition of worshiping him, if he just, you know, serve him, do things according to his methodology and according to the patterns that are present in this world. Was was this offer in the Satan's power to give, you know, I'm going to let theologians wrestle that one out or have knife fights or whatever it is they do. I'll let them figure that out. But this is a common theme in the New Testament. The kingdoms of humankind and their grasp for power over people is always arrayed in opposition to the kingdom and rule of God. Always, without fail in the New Testament. You're not going to find some neat combo gift pack of the two. So this is a temptation to step back into the patterns of the fallen world system, to seek political power or self-advancement through force or manipulation, the way that human empires advance their rule, how it is that they maintain order. The enemy is saying, I'll see to it that this happens, that you are glorified, that you're ruling over all the nations. Just do it the way that we do it here. And again, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, Jesus is heralded as exactly what is described in this temptation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This was a temptation to accept a false promise of fulfillment from a lesser source than God, looking for a kingdom of this world instead of God's kingdom. It was offered at the wrong time, something that provided an immediate substitute for what God ultimately intended Jesus to be, but without the agony of the cross, something that bypasses that sacrifice of love. All of these temptations are inciting Jesus to betray his identity, to alter his mission, or to misuse his power. And what we realize from this is that we're going to overcome temptation by rejecting other sources of fulfillment. And I can't think of anything more apropos for a consumer culture like our own, because uh, <laughs> everything about our present culture is offering us status or power or wholeness or satisfaction if we will just accept the patterns of this fallen world and the way that this fallen world operates. We're promised fulfillment by the tangible things that are offered us on a regular basis. Man, you will have inner peace and total serenity if you buy the latest iPhone. You'll finally be fulfilled at least for a few weeks until the next one is released. Fight for this political leader and the world will be shaped around the way you want it to be shaped, even though they are all the same substance, just shaped differently. Use the patterns of this broken world to find fulfillment and you can have it your own way. You can take it by force. You can take it by violence. But Jesus counters again with God's word that fulfillment in life is found in submission to God's plan to God's operating and his sovereignty. As humans, we inherently sense 
that there's something lacking in us. We're born with that. We come into this world with this awareness of some ineffable longing for something. There's something we want. There's something we need. A sense that we're not complete just in and of ourselves. And so we try to satisfy that longing with so many things. Economic uh, advancement, materialism, politics, or conspiracies about politics. I told somebody the other day that if I could get God's people to love God's word like they love a good conspiracy, I think we could turn the world upside down. (laughs) But I fear sometimes I failed in that. All of those things, all of those things are substitutes. Real fulfillment is discovered in trusting in God's plan, God's timing, God's sovereignty, in Him accomplishing His will in this world. I'll tell you, all the different things that we grasp for, thinking that we're going to find fulfillment or find the answers, we don't need some silly QAnon to tell us what to believe or what the truth is. We look to the King of Kings who holds all truth in, of, in and of Himself. That's who we look to, not these other things. We can overcome the temptation to find a shortcut to paradise by keeping our eye on the true prize, on Jesus and His return and the restoration of all things through His power and His grace, through redemption that occurs through sacrificial love. Okay, well, let's read this third temptation in this account. Verse 9. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you're the Son of God, jump off. But the Scriptures say he'll order his angels to protect and guard you, and they'll hold you up in their hands so you don't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. So again, we see... This wasn't just a one-off experience for Jesus, but this carried with it significant meaning that he obviously had to share with his followers who then shared it with us. And again, we assume that this is a vision or a picture of the temple in Jesus' mind. And in an interesting twist here, it's the Satan that now is quoting Scripture. He quotes Psalm 91 about God's promise to protect the king in all of his endeavors. It's a suggestion that jumping from the tower, the highest tower there on the temple mount, Uh, is a way that Jesus could prove God's power right off the bat, right there in the thick of, of Israel's religion. He could do this amazing miracle and show how God preserves him and it would prove God's power to save and, and, and his faithfulness in just a spectacular fashion there. Everybody would be amazed. And it seems like a reasonable thing to do. Show off God's power, prove that he's capable of saving people. It even seems scriptural because it says it right there in the Bible. Jesus, this is pretty cool. And yet it's actually an enticement to assert personal control in this situation. So so again, we realize here that we're going to overcome temptation when we stop asking God to bless our own agenda. The temptation here is probably the most insidious of all of them because it's cloaked in piety. And they're the worst of all. It looks on the surface as though he's going to do something for God. We're going to do something for God. But only because we think we're helping God out. (laughs) I kind of noticed you're slacking there, God, so I think we got it from here. 
It's interesting that the biggest danger in this temptation is Scripture. I should say Scripture misapplied and misused. We've heard that reductionist phrase. I'm sure you've heard it somewhere in your life. I've heard it plenty of times. Well, you know, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And it's a very reductionist way of looking at something. You've heard the old story of the guy who's seeking wisdom from God. What do I do? And he just flips his Bible open and puts his finger on it. And it says Judas went out and hanged himself. And he says, that's not good enough. He flips through again, puts his finger down, go and do likewise. So, I mean, Scripture is, is God's word. But how it's applied is really, really important. And it matters here in a case like this. You know, uh, Jesus didn't say, you know, well, God says it. I believe it. That settles it. And go jumping off the temple. Because it matters who is speaking it. The devil quotes scripture, but he is still the devil. So we need to see what's happening here, how scripture was being used. And used is the highly problematic verb in this sentence. When it comes to the Bible, that word, use, that's something we need to be cautious and careful about. Because in this temptation, the enemy takes the Bible and seeks to decontextualize it, to make Scripture an independent force that can be used to accomplish what it was that Jesus wanted accomplished, if, if he were to fall for that. The enemy is perfectly happy for us to have a Bible and to even use a Bible as long as we leave God out of it, as long as we're just using that as some sort of force in this world. Jesus doesn't seem to believe that every word of Scripture is equally applicable to his circumstances, something we need to keep in mind when it comes to how it is that we understand the word and how it's going to apply to our lives. The Bible is God's word. I believe that. But Jesus doesn't accept just any word from Scripture as God's word to him for that moment. For Jesus, it's not just about God's truth. It's also about God's timing, God's calling, and mostly about God's love and how that's going to be represented through these things. God is who the word is pointing to. God is who it is that we're meant to interact with through the word. We don't use the word. That's a misappropriation of what we've been given. People use the word of God and do all kinds of terrible things in this world. Our instruction is to attend to and to present ourselves before God's word, word, to hear from God through it, and then be shaped by him, by it. It's not about whether or not God could do any of these things that were present in these temptations. Of course he can. But Jesus answers this by pointing to another scripture, Deuteronomy 6.16, and indicates that God isn't going to be used like a genie getting us out of whatever jam we get ourselves into. Don't foolishly test him on these things. As I said, this is insidious because it can seem so spiritual in the process of this. Well, I just do what I think is right, and I have Scripture behind me. I'm not afraid of the disease that walks at noonday. God, get me out of this hospital. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying... We can be quoting scripture left and right as we're still using it to achieve our own goals instead of allowing God to reshape our values through it and make us into kingdom people who see this world completely differently. 
So whose agenda are we following? Are we trying to make our own agenda sacred by couching it in a certain level of spiritual language or random bits of scripture as we go along? Or are we submitting to God's rule and trusting that he will come through in his time with all of these things, all of these things that we hope for? Because God, according to Romans eight twenty eight, is working through all of these things, good and bad to accomplish his good purposes, leading us towards the good ending he has in store. Can we trust him enough to believe in that? Can we hold fast to his rule as king over our lives enough to yield these things to him? Because ultimately, that's the heart of all of these temptations, the submission to God as opposed to allowing the forces of this broken world to guide and shape us. Jesus was tempted And we are as well. So let's not get discouraged when we get tempted. That's a part of the journey. That's all part and parcel of serving God. But let's keep our focus where it needs to be in all of this, on the God who loves us and will make a way through these things for us if we'll yield to him, if we'll submit to him, if we'll follow his ways, trusting in his grace, knowing that none of us does this well, that he remembers our frame, that he knows that we're dust, that he's already taken care of our sins as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed them from us. But as children who want to emulate him, who want to know what it is to live the life he meant for us to live, to be the kind of human being he intended all along, those that are bearing his image into a broken world with the promise and the hope of something so much better in store. If we can keep our focus there, If we'll just trust him, we'll find ourselves moving through these temptations a little differently, maybe even a little more successfully. So let's submit to God and his values and his purposes. And let's remember that when we're looking for fulfillment, it's going to be coming through him and him alone. Right on? All right. Very cool. Father, we thank you for your word and what it is that you reveal to us through your word And Lord, again, we don't want to to be people who come and listen and hear just words, but I pray that you, by your Spirit, as we've taken the time here to present ourselves before your Word, you, by your Spirit, begin to change us, begin to mold us, begin to reshape us into who it is you meant for us to be so that we can look like you, Jesus, so that we can properly and rightly represent you into this world. Do that work by your spirit, the work that no human can do. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And we just ask you, Lord, to intervene here, to stretch out your hand, to touch and to heal, to bring about a full recovery. We, we entrust all of those who are suffering this way into your hands, Lord. And in your hands, we know that everyone is safe. So bring your healing power to bear and hear our cry on their behalf and bring about the recovery that we so desperately long for, the good news that we need to hear. And we pray these things, trusting in you who are the great physician, trusting in you, Lord, who are the great, who is the great healer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right on. Well, thank you for doing that with me.